If we don't stabilize, then what we do have is people being worried, distracted, and when you're worried and distracted, you're not going to focus on the work. That was Elaine Palakis, our guest today on Beyond COVID, an IBJ podcast that's about getting your company to the other side of the coronavirus crisis. The podcast is brought to you by James Allen Insurance. I'm Leslie Weidenbetter. There may be no more important time to be agile than now when the entire economy has been disrupted and nothing about the way we do business is normal. But new research finds the single most important factor in a company's ability to be agile is actually its foundational stability. And let's face it, stable is not something a lot of business leaders are feeling right now. So we thought we'd talk with Elaine Palakis, the CEO of talent management consulting firm PDRI. She's the author of the research about agility and is the co-author of an article about how to build agile teams that published in Harvard Business Review this month. And then later, we'll chat with IBJ reporter Susan Orr about the state of the Paycheck Protection Program and its impact in Indiana. Here's my conversation with Elaine. So, Elaine, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Nice to be here, Leslie. I'm very excited to talk to you about some of the research that you've been doing that has to do with agility and why foundational stability is needed to create that atmosphere. I thought we should start with a couple definitions, though. I wondered if you could explain what organizational agility means and why it matters. Ah, that's a really good question, Leslie, because there's been a lot of I think, confusion in our field about what exactly agility means. And we don't really have an agreed upon definition of it. And so when we started out to do our research, we thought we're going to have to put a stake in the ground. And if we want to measure it, right, we have to first start by defining it. And so we went to the research and looked at what thought leaders were saying. And we kind of adopted a definition of agility that was suggested by a group out at the University of Southern California, the Center for Effective Organizations. And here, what they, how they defined agility is it's when organizations, and it's important that we're talking about organizations now and not necessarily teams and people. That's a different matter. But organizational agility is really about being able to shift your strategy as needed and also abandon strategies that aren't doing well quickly. So it's being able to take a proactive approach, sense what's going on in your environment, come up with effective competitive strategies, and also be sense-making of your strategies you currently have in place and being disciplined about jettisoning those that aren't working well. That's one part of agility. Now, a second part of agility is resilience. It's a piece of it. This is a more reactive piece of agility. And this is something that we added on to the definition. And this is really about organizations that are able to absorb a jolt and bounce back quickly. I was thinking as you were talking that sometimes that part about jettisoning the things that aren't working can be the hardest part. Exactly. And that's why it's such an important part of this definition. And that's actually why we liked this definition the best. And a lot of times just to, you know, people talk about agile teams, 
We talk about agile leaders. But the reason we focused on organizations is because at the end of the day, it's being competitively successful and surviving. That's the ultimate goal. And that is an organization level variable. And so if we were gonna predict competitive success, survival, and we looked actually at real financial outcomes from organizations in our research, we asked ourselves then, what's the right level of analysis to study? And it's the whole organization. And so what we wanted to do was essentially compare agility at the organizational level to organizational outcomes, which also occur at the organizational level. That's where we were focused. And that's a little different than you see in a lot of research and writing, where you see agile teams, agile individuals, agile leaders. And our point was that a bunch of agile teams don't necessarily add up to an agile organization. Tell me about how you did the research. What was your study like? So what we did is we actually studied over 300 organizations globally. So, and a lot of them are marquee brands that everyone has heard of in the Fortune 100, down to smaller, medium-sized organizations. Some of them are not-for-profits. A lot of them were for-profit organizations. Some of them were government organizations. So we really tried to cover the waterfront. And what we did is we measured them on a bunch of different factors that we thought might be important for building organizational agility. So we looked at things like strategy, engagement, climate, stability. We had about six or seven factors that we looked at. So we measured the organizations on those factors. And then we measured all these organizations on how agile and resilient they are, just as we described them. And then for the for-profit organizations where we could get financial outcomes, we looked at actual financial outcome data. The first thing that we found is that companies that are in fact more agile and resilient as we define them have remarkably higher financial performance. And so we were actually surprised at the extent to which agility and resilience were related to financial performance. So you thought that might um, it might not be that big of a factor and it we really did sure. turn out to be important. Well, see, we weren't sure because there's been so little actual research that has looked across this many companies, this broad a sample. You know, you talk about agility is important, but when you actually dig in, what you find out is that there hasn't been all that much research to really provide evidence about the extent to which agility and resilience lead to financial performance. And we found out that companies that were high on agility and resilience had 500% higher return on equity and about 150% higher return on invested capital. So those were the outcome variables that we looked at. So then the second thing was, okay, once we established that, which we hope we would find that connection, then our next question is, okay, so how do you create it? Is it just having a bunch of agile leaders? Does that get you an agile organization? That wasn't our theory. So we looked at a bunch of organizational level variables. Again, strategy, engagement, climate. We looked at stability. We looked at something we call right-sized teamwork, which is just taking a measured approach to teamwork in your organization. And we looked at how aggressively the organization course corrects and how much that's a theme for them. So we looked at a variety of factors and stability ended up being the most important, had the most impact on the development of agility and resilience. Was that a surprise at all? Uh, yeah, it was. I, I would say that 
we thought it might be important because, and, and the reason we measured it is because an awful lot of people at the time were starting to talk about the importance of stability. And we thought it was a curious idea because it's actually a paradox. When you think about agility, you know, stability is, it's a counterbalancing factor almost because agility is things are changing, they're rocky, they're fast paced, you're turning on a dime, right? You're dealing with all kinds of stuff that's hitting you that you don't expect. So the fact that there's this paradox, that there's this counterbalancing factor, that stability that you actually need foundationally that or that allows you then to be agile and resilient we thought was interesting so were we surprised that stability played some role in agility maybe not surprised there were three things in our study that really came out as important but stability had double the impact of anything else that was important so of the top three it really had the most impact on agility. So that, I would say, we weren't expecting. Now, what were the other two factors that you found did also play a role? The second one was right-sized teamwork. And this would require, you know, I don't want to take too much of our interview time because that's almost a whole separate topic. But this is really about the company as a whole taking a very mindful approach to teamwork. Because what's happened is over the past few years, there have been, we talk about HR trends of the day, human resources trends of the day. And two big trends over the past few years have been diversity and inclusion and teamwork. And so what's happened is organizations have really invested a lot in saying, gosh, we should do a lot of work in teams. And there's reasons to do that. You want to connect work that's related in seamless ways because that too helps you to be agile but our organizations have set out and said look more teamwork is better we need lots of teamwork we need lots of collaboration we want lots of diversity and inclusion as general principles but what's happened is we haven't really been mindful enough about how we're implementing teamwork and collaboration and we haven't really thought through enough how much is needed to really get the work done efficiently. And the problem is, in many cases, we've ended up overdoing it. Too much teamwork, too much collaboration. It causes confusion and chaos more than you need in the work. So what we found, which was really interesting and we thought pretty cool, actually, is that the companies that take a more mindful and judicious approach to teamwork are actually more agile. So again, there's kind of this paradox there. And when you sim- when you get the right teamwork, but it's simplified, it's clear, you spend more time on people knowing their roles, then you get, you're kind of laying, again, a foundation that enables agility. So that was another important factor. So it was stability, right-sized teamwork, and then something we call relentless course correction. And this is really about companies that are not afraid to, to raise issues and problems. You know, one thing that happens at work, and you've probably seen it a million times, is everybody knows there's a problem. Nobody will confront it, nobody will deal with it, nobody will correct it, so it's left to fester. But the companies that actually boldly address problems and enable their workforces to solve these problems efficiently and effectively, they, again, lay a foundation that allows for more agility. So those are the three factors that had the most impact in creating agility. And what's really interesting about it is all of them simplify, clarify, and help to focus the work. In order to be agile, in order to be resilient, you have to have these foundations 
that kind of simplify, clarify, and focus your work. Of course, today I want to focus on the idea of foundational stability, but I would love to come back and talk to you again in the future about those other factors because they're obviously really important. Yeah, they are, and they're really interesting, so would love to do that in the future. So foundational stability, let's define that as well. What does that mean? Stability is just having a solid foundation in an organization that allows people to absorb change and jolts. That's really all it is. You know, it's, it's very simple. I mean, there are several things that leaders can do to create stability, but at the core, it's having a sense of confidence, security, optimism. It's all the things that you need to feel okay about your situation at work. And what those things do is they keep you calm, they keep you rational, they keep you focused, which is what you need to be to be able to absorb change and actually turn on the dime as a situation evolves. And those are the things that allow you to kind of act like shock absorbers when you get hit with something. Those are also the things that are in somewhat short supply at the moment, given exactly. the coronavirus crisis. Exactly. In fact, the coronavirus crisis turned us on our heads and it actually made this research, I think, as relevant as it was ever going to get. Um, as leaders and organizations have looked around, they've had to very quickly, you know, we've all had to turn on a dime, change how we're doing business and deal with all kinds of problems in such a compressed time frame that we never envisioned we'd have to deal with. And people have been extremely destabilized. And so I just think inherently with this situation, you know, they're worried. They're worried about their health, which is first and foremost, financial things, their families. You, you know what I mean? They're extremely distracted. And yet there's never a time when a company needed to probably be more agile. Correct. Because look at how, and that's going to go into the future too. It's This is just the beginning, right? There's no end to this near in sight. So I know in our business, for example, you know, we had to send everybody home. Luckily, we did have the systems in place to be able to do that so that people could work from home. And we were lucky because a lot of companies didn't. But now, you know, you have to continue being agile and figuring this out. And there's no right answer. How do we go back to work? Do we go back to work? What about our customers? What kind of new products do we need to put out very rapidly? We deliver assessments to companies and we do it through uh, an automated platform. But we realized, you know, in order to meet the needs today, we need even more options for automated assessment. And so we very rapidly stood up some new products that had more automated assessment options that we could offer to our customers remotely. So we ended up really taking stuff we had, but developing new products quickly that we could put into the market that were necessary to meet today's needs. So it's that kind of thing. You find yourself thinking about, okay, how am I going to serve my customers? Because if you can't, then you're going to have significant revenue impacts. You know, we're all thinking together about how do we how do we bounce back? How do we need to change what we're doing? Not just for our employees, but our products, our customers, etc. And it requires tremendous agility again in a compressed time frame when you're also worried about all the health stuff and, and everything else. Thank you. 
As you work your way through the pandemic crisis, would your business be ready if this happened again? James Allen Insurance offers comprehensive and customized pandemic coverage for business, including recovery of lost revenue. Learn more at jamesalleninsurance.com. For Harvard Business Review, you wrote an article that talked about a number of steps that companies can take to try to create that foundational stability. Let's go through a couple of them. Let's start at the top in terms of sharpening focus, because I do think that's really important. And the fact that people are very distracted right now is something that employers and managers and leaders have to deal with. What are your thoughts about that? Well, absolutely. I mean, this is the problem. You've got people at home. You've got people at home with their kids. They have to figure out how to educate them, entertain them, or whatever. You've got two working parents who usually go to work and have some sort of child care. I mean, that's a that's a frequent scenario. And all of a sudden at work, you, you start to realize that you do a lot of things at work. You do your main priorities that are the company's key strategic initiatives. But there's lots of other things that you do at work. And they have a rack and stack order. Well, when you're trying to stabilize things and especially when you're in the midst of dealing with a crisis or a jolt you really have to slim it down at the highest level is you need to simplify you need to focus and you need to clarify especially when people are distracted you need to point out what are the things that matter most and you need to get everyone focused on those things that are really going to make the most difference to your business your people etc and get rid of the superfluous things because People just don't have the bandwidth or the time right now to be doing the nice-to-haves. So as a leader, the best thing you can do to help stabilize the situation is not confuse them or distract them with 50 million different things, but really focus in on those one or two things that matter most. There may never be a better time to do what we talked about earlier, which is eliminate some of those things that aren't really working that no one wants to get rid of. This is the perfect opportunity to do that, in fact. So, right, things that aren't adding high value, things that don't, that have less direct impact on your business success. Because right now, so many businesses are suffering, Leslie. Every business is worried about, you know, what does the future hold? Because people aren't consuming like they did. So it's like, how are we going to focus? What do we need to do? And where's our best opportunities? And you really have to skinny it down. Reassuring people is another one of the of the things you talked about that leaders need to do. They need to figure out how to put people's mind at ease. What are the things that you think leaders could be telling folks right now? And of course, you want to be as honest as possible. It's not like you can reassure people in ways that are not honest. Well, and therein lies the trick here is you want to reassure people as best you can. And you have to, there's another practice here that's build optimism. And these are kind of related, but it's what can we do? What are we going to do? It's getting a plan in place. It's not going to be a perfect plan. It's being honest about what you know and what you don't know. And it's providing information to give people, you know, some direction, some idea of what's going on, what you're thinking, but balanced with the reality of the situation. And I know I'm being a little bit esoteric here, but there's not a concrete playbook on this one. You just have to do your best. And if you look at some of the people on TV, you know, Dr. Fauci, Governor Cuomo, 
they've done an actually a pretty good job of being honest, candid, so they build a lot of credibility. But where they can, they are reassuring. You know, we have a plan. This is what we're doing. This is what we're going to do next. They're not always right. But if you listen to them, they've been reassuring massively at the same time that they have built credibility through being transparent and honest about what we're dealing with. Those are the models. And the transparency seems especially important. It seems like people often get the most anxious about the about things they don't know or right. an, the anticipation of what might happen rather than if they actually know what the situation is. Well, that's right. And I mean, a lot of companies, for example, are having to ask employees to take pay cuts. That's for those who don't you know, who aren't even in a worse position of being laid off and so on and so forth. But let's take that situation. Explaining why you need to do it. I know of a company that I was working with that actually said, we have a whole company here. We're all in this together. We think the best thing to do is just have everyone take a little bit of a pay cut rather than just go to certain departments who are suffering more than others. We're going to spread this out. We're each going to do a little bit. We're going to take our part. And what that is going to allow us to do is not lay anyone off for the next three months. So, you know, in that case, there was an honest message and people say, okay, I know what's going on. I know why we're doing this and they they don't mind doing it. And it's actually demonstrating that you're thinking things through and you've got a plan. That's very reassuring. The other thing is that leaders can do on the reassurance front is just it's something we call check in before you check on. And this is just something that individual leaders can do. And it's just saying to people, how are you doing? How is your family doing? Showing compassion, showing that you care, showing that there's, you know, really a human side there and you appreciate the challenges situation is actually reassuring. I would think creating stability in this kind of situation would also mean trying to be flexible with employees. I mean, I think a great example is the is the fact that so many parents are home with their kids. It's difficult for them to balance all the things they have to do. And so I assume employers who try to work within the confines of what employees are dealing with go a long way toward doing that reassurance you were talking about. I've always felt this myself, but I don't know how common it is. It's this notion of, you know, you're trying to balance work and life. And it's tough, especially if you have two working parents, let's say, under any circumstances. This is what I believe. I don't actually care when you get your work done. If you need to go run an errand during the day and take two hours out of the work day, as long as you don't have customer meetings and you can do, you know, get up early or work late or whatever works for you in your schedule, I've always been okay with that in our organization and with my employees. But I think that kind of thinking now is imperative because people have their kids at home. They can't leave. They can't get the same help that they did. I don't think we're going to get as much out of people right now. There's no way we can. So again, this is why you get back to this idea of sharpen focus because try as hard as we will it's going to be impossible to put in the same eight hour day as when you can go be at work i think we have to just give ourselves latitude give our employees latitude and work with them in their particular situations and be happy with enough 
this dovetails right into the idea of harmonizing resources, which is another thing yeah. that you wrote about. And this idea that there's probably not enough human resources to go around, probably not enough financial resources to go around right now. What can companies do to deal with that? I think this needs to be something that each and every leader needs to tackle in their own situation with their own teams. We've had this notion, and this has been, again, one of these HR trends for the past, I don't know, several years, this idea of do more with less, do more with less. And really, I've seen companies use it almost as an excuse, if you will, to justify massive cuts that really put people under tremendous pressure because this is what we should be doing. Yeah, that's been a tremendous yeah. issue in uh, in journalism, not at the IBJ. I'm really fortunate that at IBJ, we've actually increased some of our resources, but across the media industry, reporters are being laid off. People are constantly being told they need to do more with less. And there's a point at which you can't do more with less. Exactly. This notion is a morale killer at the extreme. And I'm not saying don't be efficient, because certainly up to a point, it's fine. But there's a line where you cross it. And this is before coronavirus ever existed, where do more with less was just it was a morale squasher. You know, you just at some point you can't get water out of a stone. And as a leader, you've got to be mindful and intentional about making sure that you you go up to the line to make people as efficient and productive as possible, but don't cross the line because at some point you're just burning people out in ways that are going to be unproductive for your company and your team. But for now, in particular, I think leaders need to be very intentional about harmonizing resources. Companies, in some cases, have had to lay people off. People get sick. You don't have the same 100% people at work able to give 100% right now, as is the normal case. So leaders, again, have to take that in mind. You get back to sharpen focus. Let's focus on the things that are most important, because we may not be able to do everything we used to do because we don't have the person power available to do it, and we don't have people attending like they used to when, you know, they didn't have the distraction of coronavirus and all the things that have gone with that. One of the things you talk about here is optimizing failure. And I thought that was really interesting because while I do think about that in terms of agility, I never think about optimizing failure in terms of stability. Yeah, I actually think when we fail, it's destabilizing because if you undertake, let's say, a new initiative or you put out a new product and it fails, you've now invested a lot, right? And it didn't work. And so you worry about that. You worry about, well, now what's going to happen? Are we going to lay people off? You know, are we not going to get investments the next time we need them? So when you fail, there's a lot of things that people naturally start worrying about. And in addition, what happens oftentimes when we fail is people start pointing fingers at each other. Not my fault. You know, that the reason it failed is because that other guy or that other team didn't do what they were supposed to do. We did, you know, because you're trying to, to blame somebody else, not, sure. not yourself. Defensiveness. So you can dodge the bullet. So those things are all destabilizing if you think about it. They're not productive. They cause swirl. So if you can take that situation and move past it quickly and then ultimately, and this would be like the best outcome you could possibly have, turn it into something positive. Say, okay, 
we failed, and this is the leader's role, we failed, we're not going to point fingers, we're not going to blame each other, we're not going to get too wrapped up in the fact that we failed and the negative outcomes of that. But if you can take that and find some opportunity in your failure, something you learned or something you can take forward to make the failure a productive failure and then show people very quickly how failing was important so that we can get to this next step, then it makes them not so worried. And that's stabilizing. You know, stability is about getting people's heads on in, in a way that, you know, is psychologically safe and they feel like they're in an environment where they can succeed that will ultimately be successful. And a lot of times if we don't stabilize, then what we do have is people being worried, distracted. And when you're worried and distracted, you're not gonna focus on the work. I'm seeing that in our own staff right now as people worry about what this pandemic has meant for our business. I can see when we reassure them of how things are going, they feel they can really stop worrying and focus. Because you need to have all your wits about you when you have to deal with change. Like we have to put new products in place. You know, we need to turn on a dime. We need to move quickly. And we need people focused to be able to do that. So we've got, got to get rid of the baggage of the worry and the distraction so that they can focus because then that's what's going to allow them to turn on the dime and help us change in the ways that we need to rapidly to be agile and resilient. And the seventh thing in your list is to plan for recovery which is yes. incredibly important right now. Yes, it is. And here again, you know, when we were talking about reassurance and I said, being able to tell people that there's a plan, you know what I mean? As long as you have a plan, it, again, it's a psychological thing. You may not be any more in control than you were five minutes ago, but once you can figure out what your plan is, then you feel better. You feel like you have a way forward and step one, step two, step three. That's why it's reassuring to have a plan. But also the mere act of being able to make a plan says, okay, we can get out of this. It's this psychological state of stability. It's having that plan. It's being able to show yourself that you can plan for recovery. Then it's being able to track your progress against that plan. And even if it's not right 100%, then being able to adjust the plan and move on is extremely stabilizing. Well, Elaine, I can't thank you enough for all of your great advice and for all of this information. You bet, Leslie. Thanks again to Elaine for joining us. You can see her article at hbr.org and get into the nitty gritty of the research at Consulting Psychology Journal. So last week, the Paycheck Protection Program ran out of money. And Congress is now considering whether to replenish it. Let's talk with IBJ reporter Susan Orr about how many companies in Indiana received loans. Welcome to the podcast, Susan. Thank you, Leslie. So last week we found out that the Paycheck Protection Program ran out of money. First, tell us what that program is and then what you've learned about how much money was allocated? Well, the Paycheck Protection Program was part of a larger federal package of coronavirus relief. This was geared towards small businesses, which is defined as 500 employees or less. And it gave them forgivable loans of up to 10 million, depending on the size of their payroll. 
and uh, the forgivable part of it is that if if they used, I think it was 75% of the loan on things like employee payroll, then they don't have to pay back the loan. It, it turned out to be pretty wildly successful. Applications started being accepted on April 3rd. And as of, they said, 10 a.m. last Thursday, the 16th, they were totally out of money. And that was uh, $349 billion with a B that had been allocated. The director of the Great Lakes region for the Small Business Association, that the SBA approved more loans in 14 days than we did in 14 years. Um, that's amazing. It, yeah, I don't know if he was exaggerating, but that, that was his point being that there was a lot of demand for these loans. How many companies in Indiana ended up with a loan? According to the SBA, which was the one that kind of administered the program, 35,990 applications were approved, so close to 36,000. And of those loans, it represented $7.49 billion with a B. And do we have any sense of how many companies applied in Indiana but did not get a loan? If that number is out there, I have not seen it. What will happen next? Is there any chance these companies will be able to get a loan funded? Well, right now, Congress is debating um, putting another allotment of money uh, into the program. The reporting that I saw this afternoon from the Wall Street Journal said that uh, as of now, they're looking at putting another $310 billion into just the Paycheck Protection Program. Of course, nothing happens until it happens, but last I heard, they're, they're set to resume negotiations tomorrow, the 21st. Well, Susan, thanks so much for the update. I really appreciate it. Hey, anytime. Thanks for tuning in this week to IBJ's Beyond COVID podcast. You can find it at ibj.com every Tuesday or subscribe at Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, or Podbean. You can also check out the latest episode of the IBJ podcast hosted by Mason King. This week, Mason explores what it's like to try to buy and sell houses during the pandemic. Tune in at ibj.com or anywhere you download podcasts. See you next week. Thank you.